Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Jonathan Armstrong is on holiday this week, so I'm joined by his founding partner at Quartery Compliance, Andre Bywater, to look at the upcoming EU whistleblower directive. This is part two of a two-part podcast series on the new EU Whistleblower Directive. In this episode, we take a look at whistleblowing and data protection slash data privacy issues, subject access requests, what is false whistleblowing, what are sanctions for noncompliance, are there bounties for whistleblowing in the EU or the UK, what about implementing rules for the new whistleblower program, and Andre ends with some of the key takeaways and what you can do now. I know you will enjoy part two of this special two-part series. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and back for part two of an incredible, geeky podcast with Andre Bywater. We are looking at the EU Whistleblower Directive, but we've uh, really uh, started exploring a wide variety of other topics down to potential damages at trial. So this is going to be part two, and welcome back, Andre. Hi, thanks for having me again, Tom. Andre, um, you, in addition to your whistleblowing expertise, have some expertise in data privacy as well. So uh, I was wondering if I might be able to ask you a a broad-based question of uh, what about whistleblowing and data privacy slash data protection issues, recognizing there are 27 EU member states, and of course, the United Kingdom. So how do you suggest a client or company reconcile these with their other GDPR requirements? Very good point. This is a big issue uh, in uh, under this new whistleblowing regime that we're going to have in all these countries. First of all, the directive actually makes a specific point. It seems obvious, but it says GDPR applies to all of this. And the specific point it calls out is that it says if you're gathering personal data, when you're handling a claim from someone speaking up, keep that to the minimum. So that's interesting that they, in the directive, they decided just to look at that particular issue. But I think it is important because there may be a tendency for someone speaking up to provide, if you like, too much detail, as we say, that, you know, we don't need all this personal data about all these other people. Um, so when the claim is being handled, there are going to be a number of things that uh, will need to be considered. In fact, even before the claim is handled, perhaps I should say there's one big thing that people will need to do when they're putting together their, if they haven't got hotlines already, or if they're putting together their policy, revising the policy, or putting together, as I said, the internal playbook or the manual that sets out what the whistleblowing team have to do. The first thing, as I say, that I think you're going to have to do as part of your planning process is you're going to have to do a data protection impact assessment. Um, That's an assessment looking at all the risks. So, for example, you'd have in your questionnaire, if you like there, how are we going to keep the whistleblower's personal data secure? For example, we might have to have things like access controls 
So only the whistleblowing team would have access to that within the, the company's internal kind of IT system. Um, those are the sorts of risks you're going to have to look at. And in a way, it gets worse because some of the member states, like France, for example, has got a special whistleblowing data protection impact assessment law just on this. Nothing to do with the directive. Um, I see you're smiling. I wonder why, Tom. But uh, that, and it's, that's very prescriptive, saying you've got to have that in place or you're in trouble. Um, I don't know whether Tom's smiling because of maybe the whole history of SOX and the different issues with France and data being sent to the US and so on. It was a, a whole saga. So you have to do this data protection impact assessment. That's the thing you're going to have to do, I say, before you set up your system. But then once the whole thing's running, like I said, you're going to have to do things like make sure you're keeping the minimal amount of data. The other thing you're going to have to decide on, this is your typical GDR stuff, GDPR stuff, is What's the legal basis on which I'm processing personal data when I, I'm handling a whistleblowing claim? That's probably going to be something called what we call legitimate interests rather than the classic one of consent, for example. So you're going to have to decide these sorts of things before you, you set up your system. But then when you're handling the claim, I think one of your possibly big issues is going to be the issue of the person about whom the whistle is being blown. Because as you all know, I'm sure, we've got this very draconian thing in the EU under GDPR called the subject access request, where you can make a request for your personal data. And that includes asking about the source of the data and so on. So you can imagine you've got on the one hand, someone who blows the whistle about an individual, and then it'll be up to the whistleblowing team to, they're going to have to probably contact that individual unless you know, particular circumstances are there that means it wouldn't be wise for them for their investigation to do that. Once that individual knows that there's a claim about them, what are they going to do? They're going to make a subject access request and say, aha, because they want to find out who it is is blowing the whistle about them. And then we immediately come across the the, the first problem is, well, what about confidentiality? Um, now, there are certain ways that you can deal with that as a subject access request. Either you go and you get the big black pen and you redact like mad in your documents, so the people's names and so on, or you try and find a different way, a legal way to say, no, we can't give you access to that information. So that's going to be a really tricky one, I think, for people to deal with. And we've already seen in Germany, there's been a big court case, I think, last year, where pre the whistleblowing directive, where a company did this, the whistleblower wanted access to his data, so he probably could try and find out who the whistleblower was. That was refused. He went to court and the court found for that individual against the company because the court was saying the company hadn't done the homework in terms of refusing to provide that personal data. So these are just some of the issues, Tom. They're the main ones, I think, that um, companies are going to have to deal with on the data protection piece concerned with whistleblowing. But this isn't entirely new. In a sense, this has been with us already. Um, but I think this directive is, is sort of really bringing those sorts of issues to the fore. But they are all issues you can deal with. People can be trained about how to handle those and so on. Um, so they're not unsolvable issues, but they are things that are going to come up. Let me uh, take it in a little bit different direction once again with my trial lawyer background. Uh, in the United States, the default position for termination of an employee is, is any reason. Uh, there are very few exceptions to that unless there's a 
a union environment where there's a labor uh, management contract in place providing certain procedural protections. That is not true in the United Kingdom, and that's not true in the EU. Uh, I have some familiarity with the United Kingdom that uh, you can actually uh, bring an action to uh, uh, that you were wrongfully terminated. Uh, so how does the confidentiality issues and the potential rights of those accused fit into uh, this overall scheme if, if a person is accused of wrongdoing and they're terminated as a part of a company's whistleblower investigation? Any, any thoughts on that issue? Well, certainly the directive doesn't deal with any of that. I think that's going to be up to national legislation uh, in each country. Um, I think the directive is really just aimed at setting out the systems and so on, but not really all that kind of follow through about how those sorts of issues are dealt with. So, um, you know, I don't know if businesses are thinking through that far. Um, but as I say, that's, that's all going to be dealt with in very different ways in different countries. Uh, I think that's probably the best I can say on that. Andre, in part one of our uh, now two-part series, you mentioned false whistleblowing. I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit about what false whistleblowing is and potential sanctions for an individual who falsely whistleblows. Well, in its, its typical way, the directive is it's kind of blurts out like these great bold statements saying, you know, there, there shall be no false whistleblowing um, and it shall be sanctioned. So it, it's kind of at that level. Um, but there was obviously concern, um, and you and I may know this from experience, that there are false whistleblowers, people who pretend that something has happened for whatever motive. You know, maybe they want to get at their boss or something. Who knows? Um, but it's, it's clearly this has been identified as an issue. And so it's something that you're going to have to put in your policy. As I say, the internal team are going to have to be trained to be able to deal with this, to spot when there may be a false whistleblower. And you're going to have to put in your policy, make it very clear that this can be sanctioned. And again, we're going to have to see how the member states implement this, how they sanction it. And what I fear, and this is, again, back to the patchwork issue I mentioned in the, in, in the first podcast, that in, and I'm not going to name names. There's a wonderful Spanish proverb where you, you name the sin, but not the sinner. But I imagine some EU member states where it'll be slap on the wrist, very naughty, don't do it again. In other countries, it'll be go to jail sort of stuff for the false whistleblower. Um, so again, we're going to have to see how that pans out under national laws. This is why I said, again, if you have a playbook, it may be that you're going to have a separate page in that um, to explain to the whistleblowing team that, let's say, in Germany, for example, it's go to jail if you false whistleblowing, or other countries, it's a lesser penalty. But that's going to be something that will be new for people. And they might be surprised that people would even do that kind of thing. Is uh, Will that determination be made by a judicial body? Because uh, sort of an ongoing debate, at least in the United States, are there are sometimes gray areas where someone may take a more aggressive position regarding accounting reporting, and someone mm -hmm. may take a, a lesser position, and there's an internal debate in the company, and a whistleblower says they didn't follow the law, and the company says, well, we have a legal opinion that said we were entitled to do that. So it's really uh, open to interpretation. So would it be a, some type of judicial body who would make a decision on whether a whistleblower report is false? Well, that's certainly not mandated in the directive. That will be up to national law as to how they want to deal with that. Um, I think at this stage, it would just be very open that the, 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 the person accused of being a false whistleblower would just have to 
to go to court and follow whatever rules in whatever country to try and determine that. Um, but it will be the ball will be in their court, I think. And I'm not aware of any kind of special like judicial chamber or body that that deals with that. Certainly, I don't think I don't think in the UK anyway. Would a company have the right to bring a false whistleblowing claim against an alleged false whistleblower, or do they have to refer that to some sort of uh, local or national prosecutorial service? Again, it's going to depend on the member state, I suppose. Um, it may be that you know, in one country you can do both, um, or one or the other. Uh, I think we're just going to have to see how you know that pans out. It, that may exist in some countries already. I'm I'm not aware of anything in the UK. Um, but, uh, I, I imagine the company might want to take action themselves because it might not necessarily be something that's criminal, for example. Obviously, they were, I'm sure the first thing would be, would be termination of, you know, the employee. If it, if it's an employee who's been the false whistleblower. But yeah, these are uncharted waters, I think, generally for a lot of, a lot of organizations. We've had a series of court cases in the United States. Perhaps the most prominent or front of mind right now is, Theranos, because its former CEOs uh, in a criminal trial right now, but Theranos was very aggressive against um, whistleblowers and uh, sought uh, both civil and criminal sanctions against whistleblowers, many of whom are now testifying at trial. So I guess my concern would be that a very aggressive company might take a very aggressive approach in claiming mm-hmm. a uh, whistleblower was a false whistleblower and try to silence them before that information came out. Mm-hmm. Well, we do have a provision in the directive that says that what also has to be sanctioned is is vexatious proceedings against people. Again, a very open term at the moment. We're going to have to see how that pans out. Um, so, yes, I, I, we're going to have to ha- have to see in these different laws how that works out at a sort of granular level. Um, but, um, I mean, you're very forward thinking, Tom. I think a lot of organizations, you know, what I'm talking to about implementing this directive have, have not thought through to that level of, you know, what they will be doing afterwards, what their liability is and so on. Um, so you, you've just made me think that there's even, even more to be done under this directive in terms of compliance. I say the, the difficult thing is going to be that this is all going to be done at the national level. Uh, you know, it's not dictated by the, the EU directive. So if you've got a company, global company, that's got offices in all branches in all these countries, then um, they're going to have a very big playbook to put together. We'll be right back with more from Andre Bywater after this message. I'd now like to turn uh, the focus a little bit different to bounties. Uh, mm. Bounties for whistleblowers have been hugely successful in the United States. In September of this year, the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, paid out, uh, made a payment that ex- uh, allowed the total whistleblower bounty program under Dodd-Frank to go over $1 billion in mm. payouts. And the Securities and Exchange Commission has said, this is one of the most valuable programs they have for bringing wrongdoing forward. Uh, what does the directive say about bounties, and will we see something similar uh, in any of the EU member states or the United Kingdom? We see absolutely zero in the directive about this. Um, this is touching on your point in the last podcast, a big cultural difference, I think. Um, as I say, the directive says nothing. 
So it's up to the EU member states. But it's very much not been a kind of European tradition, for better or for worse, to provide for bounties. In the UK, the only one that I'm aware of is if you blow the – and it's only been going, I think, four years – is if you blow the whistle on a cartel, then our competition law agency can pay you up to – and this is going to sound very meager, £100,000, which I don't know, what's that, $120,000 or something? Compared to a billion dollars? Hmm. I, I mean, I, I, I try and get this debate going because I, I, I do think that is a very important thing, personally, you know, to, to um, try and have bounties. But I, you, you do get a, a very negative reaction here, in, and I can't speak for every European country, but this almost seems to be something distasteful. Um, but as you say, you know, you have that, is it called KITAM? In the, in the US as well, that those yes. provisions. Uh, and I remember seeing this like 25 years ago and I thought, oh, this is interesting. But no, it, it's not here, not yet. Um, maybe not for a while, maybe never. Actually, it reminds me of the original Austin Powers movie where Dr. Evil <laughs> says, we're going to demand $1 million. Perhaps you can just play that clip and uh, to show how out of touch uh, those uh, ideas are. Uh, but the um, implementation of this, you touched on this uh, a little bit in our prior podcast. What does all this mean for the United Kingdom? The United Kingdom has, in many ways, robust whistleblowing laws in some areas, perhaps less so in, uh, in others. But how is this directive going to play out for your English clients, if I can use that word, or uh, greater <laughs> United Kingdom companies that may have offices literally across the world? Well, for those companies who've got yeah offices elsewhere, particularly in the EU, who, who are based in the UK, they, they're keen to have a one-size-fits-all uh, process and policy. Many of those the big guys have already got something in place. So some of them see this as a bit of a tweaking exercise where they're just going to make small adjustments. So although they don't have to apply it for the UK, because they're applying it for Germany, France, Luxembourg, and so on, they're going to make those changes. Um, as I mentioned in the, in the previous podcast, the, I think that this may come through the back door anyway because of the Brexit deal under which we're supposed to have a, a level playing field on employment issues. And it may be that this is one of the 10 million Brexit battles that are going to be fought in the future, that the UK has to sort of implement that. Um, now, there have been, as you say, we've got already whistleblowing legislation. There have been a few recent attempts to reform our whistleblowing legislation. Um, both have failed in Parliament, um, but I think that I think it's going to come back. And there certainly is some lobbying going on by some groups to try and bring something back, including with some of these EU directive aspects. It was quite interesting to see what the, some of those proposed reforms were. One of them was to say it failed, but one of them was to have a kind of whistleblowing czar, someone who would be responsible for dealing with certain types of claims and who could maybe, I won't say bounties, but maybe pay compensation perhaps to people. Um, that disappeared. But I say, who knows, this may come back because I mean, you say it's robust. I mean, some people are more, far more critical. I think there's a lot more that could be done uh, to our legislation. Um, so I think some change may come. It may be influenced by the EU directive. Um, but as I say, the, the big guys who've, who've got all those operations elsewhere in the EU, my understanding is that they are, even though they don't have to adapt to it, they're, they're, they're trying to sort of do something anyway um, because they just want as, as one size fits all to make it easier for the business as possible. 
Andre, unfortunately, uh, we're getting near the end of our time for this episode, but I wanted to end with asking, other than picking up the phone and calling you, what would be <laughs> the perhaps uh, two or three top things that you would suggest a company do today to try to uh, be ready for December 17th? Start reviewing your policy. If you don't have one, create one. As I say, there are a few key things you can do there, like scoping, um, making sure that you're, 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 you're covering the areas, and the whole messaging piece, getting out, making sure that people understand that through the policy and either if you're going to do signage or whatever, um, that this new thing is coming, people have these rights. Um, key things like the, you know, false whistleblowers are, could be sanctioned and so on. And I say the other thing is then is training up your team. Your, your whistleblowing team. This will be new for some of them, um, so they're going to have to deal with that. And in terms of topic areas, uh, as we as we launched in at the start, the data protection piece I think is going to be really important. And then if you either have contracts already with uh, outsourced hotlines, you want to be looking at those, looking at the contract terms, and planning you know your budget ahead, making sure that some of these issues are covered there. And that your outsourced providers are, and, and I believe they are from most of the ones I've, I've talked to, they're all prepared for this. Um, so those are some of my, if you like, some of my final parting thoughts. One of the things that uh, I really appreciate about quarterly compliance are the resources you put uh, on your website that you make available to anyone, literally. And you have uh, lots of videos, uh, lots of audio, lots of uh, uh, reports. Uh, but in addition to the public information on the website, you have something called Quarterly Labs. So I was wondering as we end, if you could talk a little bit about uh, that and some of the other services that uh, clients or even potential clients could uh, come to you for a discussion around. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, we, we, we run some special sessions for people on particular topics. Um, obviously, we're looking at whistleblowing, but there are other things as well. You mentioned data protection. There've been there's so many developments going on. We we can look at that for people um, in terms of making sure that uh, you know they're compliant. But also, we're dealing with uh, you know problems when they occur. When sadly non-compliance happens, and there's an investigation by uh, let's say uh, the ICO, the Comp uh, data protection regulator. Um, so there are all those sorts of range of activities, and we're always happy to train people as well and, and draft policies and so on. So I wouldn't – and now we are at the end, but uh, for any of these fabulous resources, uh, could you tell us where could a client or potential client go? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as you say, that's our, there's our website called uh, Cordery Compliance. You can – it's hopefully <laughs> easy to, to navigate your way through to see what the different – proposed solutions are and as you say we've got a huge stock of, of news items you can obviously do a search so like if you wanted to go back to look at some of the whistleblowing issues we've talked about we've got some faqs there got an article about uk whistleblowing and so on so um, that's the that's the place to start Andre, i can't thank you enough for what turned into a two-part podcast series i'm going to link to the quarterly site and some of the key uh uh, resources and assets that I've been able to use over the years. And I greatly look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you. And you've made me think about a lot of issues as well, Tom. So much appreciated. Thank you. Very fruitful dialogue. 
This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this special two-part podcast series on Life with GDPR, where together with Andre Bywater, founding partner at Quarterly Compliance, we took a look at the EU whistleblower directive, which goes live December 17, 2021. We're going to link to the Quarterly Compliance website in the show notes. They have a plethora of resources for you, but if you haven't started on this project, I suggest you call Andre or his partner, Jonathan Armstrong, as soon as you finish listening to this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again for another episode of Life with GDPR, which is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
I have to be honest, that's not something I've really kind of thought through at this stage. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.